Your draft slot is up. You're targeting a first baseman, but you can't decide between Paul Goldschmidt and Freddie Freeman. Who do you choose? We'll ask Rob Silver from Baseball Prospectus and the Launch Angle Podcast, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, February 26th. It's show number six of the 2019 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Tuesday Tout edition for you. We have an extended interview with Rob Silver of Baseball Prospectus and the Launch Angle Podcast. And he's a past overall champion in the NFBC main event. I'll be asking Rob about comparing similar players, his early ADP analysis, his takes on some big league player news, and some of his boons and banes for 2019. It's another big Tuesday Tout edition. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Is this really spring? It's snowing in Arizona. We gotta talk some snow, some baseball. Yes, you heard that right, snow in Arizona. You might have read about it or heard about it online, but a massive winter storm dumped record-breaking amounts of snow in Arizona just a few days ago. The northern part of the state took the brunt of the white stuff, but snow did fall in Scottsdale, the spring training home of the Colorado Rockies, the San Francisco Giants, and the home state Arizona Diamondbacks. And the parts of Phoenix that didn't get snow got torrential rainfall. So if you're headed off to the Cactus League, take your parka, maybe an umbrella, and gumboots wouldn't hurt. Perhaps it's fitting that a podcast in this snowy baseball setting should feature a host who's in Waterloo, Ontario in Canada with two feet of snow on the ground and our guest who's in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada where they call two feet of snow on the ground a little dusting. So we'll don our mucklucks and our toques and get on our toboggans for the first inning of this Tuesday edition, part one of our interview with our feature guest expert, Rob Silver from Baseball Prospectus and the Launch Angle Podcast. Rob Silver, welcome to Baseball HQ Radio. It's great to be here. I, I, uh, I'm really excited for this. Uh, we were talking just before uh, off the air, and you said that you started playing fantasy baseball when you were very young, uh, a long time ago. Well, not that long ago. I don't want to <laughs> make that implication. But uh, how did you get started in fantasy? It's long ago, long enough ago um, that when I started, and I started probably when I was 15, 16 years old, it was at the time when the commissioner would fax out the standings once a week. And, of course, I was 15, so I had no fax machine. So I had to go, once every two weeks, my mom would drive me to the commissioner's uh, business. He was an adult, uh, so I can pick up the standings and find out two weeks later how my team was doing. It made transactions uh, really tough. Uh, So I know that makes me sound like I'm 150 years old, but I am old enough to remember when you had to to get uh, your standings and transactions that way. Life is better now. Yeah, some people say it is. Some people like the old, the olden days. I prefer the the new stuff. That's for sure. And the access to information. It must have been terribly difficult to do any kind of roster planning when you were always two weeks behind the eight ball. Didn't you have USA Today or anything? It was ridiculous. You had to try to figure out by hand how things might be going. Uh, it was it was not a precise. Uh, precise uh, system. Needless to say, the stakes were a little bit lower than what I play for now in the NFBC, but uh, but still, yeah. I still loved it, though. I still kept doing it. It was still a ton of fun, 
but uh, but it was frustrating. Was it rotisserie style or some kind of points? Thing? Yeah, it was it was old school AL and only uh, rotisserie drafts uh, back when we'd get. Uh, it was it was even I think before Ron Chandler started doing the forecaster, so it was a long time ago. But yeah, it was old old school uh, roto mono leagues. So I'm going to bet that uh, at some point in sort of February, you were out getting Street and Smiths and Mazeroski and those kind of things off the newsstand. Everything I could consume, and the original rotisserie guide that had the rules in it, the constitution in it, like those those were the bibles back in the day. Which now I know really makes me sound like I'm 120 years old. Well, you're, you're talking about when I started too, and I was uh, I was an adult who could go get to the uh, fax machine by driving over. So, and uh, yeah, I was I'm older than you are. I'll just put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> so you've been playing a very long time. I know you had tremendous success. Was it in 2016? You took the whole uh, enchilada on NFPC, didn't you? I did. I won the $125,000 uh, main event. Held off. Uh, players such as uh, this, this guy named Ray Murphy was chasing me in the overall standings all summer. I think Ray ended up, uh, everybody knows Ray Murphy is the uh, co-editor of uh, Baseball HQ. Uh, Ray is a great uh, NFBC player, and I think he finished 10th or 11th overall that year. But yeah, that was uh, that was a fun summer and a fun uh, fall winning the overall a couple of years ago. And uh, I feel like I'm in the best shape of my life, so I'm gearing up for 2019. Uh, only one person's ever repeated or won twice uh, the overall. So I, I feel like I'm, I've, I've done the work in the off season. I'm in great shape. I'm ready to go again for this year. Have you already started doing drafts? No, I'm one of the weirdos. Most people, in the, there are lots of people in the NFBC who start doing drafts as early as November, obviously, at First Pitch Arizona, uh, you guys and, and Greg Ambrosius in the NFBC uh, host drafts, and they've been going on literally since November. Uh, I don't like doing uh, drafts all winter. Uh, I, I do a lot of prep. I do a ton of work. My first real draft will be when I get to Las Vegas uh, in a month or so. Uh, I just that's, that's how I am. I don't find doing prep drafts uh, help me that much. Uh, and... Uh, you know, maybe not not something I should say. I don't enjoy the slow drafts. I find them annoying, uh, waiting around. Other people love them, and that's why there are thousands of leagues and and people participating in those slow draft leagues. Uh, I don't like them that much. So by opening day, how many teams do you figure you're going to have? I am trying to be super disciplined this year uh, and and cut back. There is a direct correlation for me with the fewer teams I I manage, the better I do past few years, it's been eight, nine, ten uh, teams. This year, I'm really trying to be disciplined to keep it four or five teams, and I think I'm going to succeed. And are they all going to be uh, similar formats, pretty much the same as NFBC? There'll be a couple of uh, main event uh, teams, and then the high-stakes standalone leagues, which are 15-team mix, the diamond and the platinum, I'm definitely uh, doing. So uh, so trying to, trying to stick to that, but that's the format uh, that I play, and that's uh, the format at this point that I love. You know, I, I, uh, I obviously know about the standalone leagues. I know about smaller leagues, and I, I talk a lot about them. I write about them. But, uh, but the 15-team mix is, is the format that I, I quite enjoy at this point. Any auction leagues? Uh, not this year. So this will be the first year in a long time where I don't have any auction leagues. It's just where I'm trying to, trying to put my time. But I love auctions. I, I, again, that's what I started playing. Um, 
I used to think straight drafts were kind of boring. Uh, I've come around. I think that they're as strategic and there's as much kind of game theory that goes into a straight draft as an auction. It's just different types of uh, types of thinking and different strategies that you bring to the table. But I love auctions and I love straight drafts now. And even though you haven't been drafting, I've been reading your work and I've also been listening to the Launch Angle podcast, a terrific podcast. And so I know you've got your finger on the pulse of what's going on. And I'm always curious when I talk to our fantasy experts here on Baseball HQ Radio, what you think about the environment that people are drafting in. Is anything that you've observed in real baseball or in the fantasy baseball industry that might be influential in how draft positioning is changing, how planning is changing, maybe strategy and tactics are changing. What's new in 2019 from your perspective? From my perspective, and obviously if I had a crystal ball, I'd, uh, I'd do very well this year, but from my perspective, I don't remember a year where the gap between the top starting pitchers and all other starting pitchers are, is as wide as it is uh, this year. But at the same time, I would argue that those top starting pitchers that we think are the safe elite pitchers, almost every one of them, you can make an argument why they're riskier than people think they are today. So those are contradictory observations. On the one hand, uh, and if you've read anything, if you've heard anything, I'm sure it's come up lots of times on this podcast and every podcast, man, you really want to get one of those aces early. You've, everybody's heard that. And uh, there's good reason, there's good argument, I think, for that. The flip side is, you know, Max Scherzer's 35, Justin Verlander's uh, well into his, uh, I think it's going to be 36 uh, this year. Uh, there's no chinks in those, that armor until there is. Um, Chris Sale was injured uh, last year, as was Trevor Bauer, you know, and I could go on and I could go on. So I'm not trashing any of them. There's a reason why I made the first statement, but there's a lot of risk with almost every single one of them, and uh, that makes for a tricky draft environment. And mind you, the the devil's advocate listening to that argument would say, yeah, but if you go down the list of the hitters, Mike Trout was injured, Betts was injured, um, uh, Jose Altuve got injured, Alex Bregman's coming off an injury. So as, as John Carlos Stanton has an injury history, although not in the last couple of years. So at, at a certain point, it, it isn't one of the reasons that people uh, talk about taking pitchers earlier is that they're not as risky as people think relative to hitters who have an over, people overestimate their, their non-riskiness or their certainty. They're all risky. Uh, there's no doubt. That's why it, this is a tricky, uh, silly little game that we enjoy uh, playing. I think I would, I would state the observation slightly differently, which is we know that 40% of starting pitchers roughly are going to hit the DL at some point uh, this season. Historically, the return on investment of the top starting pitchers is higher, is lower than the top hitters, but is higher than the other starting pitchers. And therefore, if you're in a league in a format where punting starting pitching, like the NFBC, is not really an option. In some mono leagues, you can still go with $30 pitching staffs in an auction and, and compete and do really well. If you hit on uh, pitchers, you manage your categories, you can do all that. The NFBC, you really can't do that. So I think that it's not that hitters are, that pitchers are safer than hitters. It's that the top starting pitchers are more likely to return um, good value on the investment that you make than the middle or lower uh, starting pitchers. 
albeit with a certain amount of risk attached. But the, if you believe that all the pitchers are relatively risky, then uh, then you're you're back looking at the top guys as opposed to the middle guys. So you're a stars and scrubs on the pitching side. Uh, to some extent, but the challenge, even with that statement, is um, you need more than two starting pitchers. Uh, and with volume uh, diminishing in, in Major League Baseball because the way teams uh, are using their starting pitchers, if you simply go with the stars and scrubs uh, approach on the pitching side, your starting pitchers three through nine, because you really need nine starting pitchers in the NFBC, they're, they're not going to be just scrubs. They're going to be brutal scrubs, and you may be struggling even with two top starting pitchers to just find enough volume. Uh, and the waiver wire, it's easy in, in February and March to convince yourself, well, I'll stream pitchers, I'll play matchups. And then you get there in July, and you're looking on Sunday afternoon at your fab waiver wire, and there's nobody. The, waiver, the, the options for streaming are brutal some of those weeks. So... Yes, I think that stars and scrubs on the pitching side is an, a, a workable strategy and a, a really good strategy in lots of ways. Just don't underestimate how challenging it is to even have viable scrubs if you go that approach in 15-team mixed leagues. Well, you mentioned that the difficulty really starts to arise later in the season when the cupboard is bare. But if your league rules are set up that you have a, a fairly large reserve, could now be the time to, to set yourself up for streaming by taking, you know, the, the speculative guys, young guys who don't have a role but might get a role, that kind of thing, in anticipation that through the year you'll be able to pick and choose from the maybe 15 or 16 pitch starting pitchers that you've rostered through the draft process or through the reserve process and eventually cobble together something that's workable, whether starting guys every start or streaming them in by, by exploiting your reserve list if it's big enough? Absolutely, and that's where lead context is so important. If you're if you're in a you know a 50 team draft and hold, for example, if you have a 12, 15 man bench uh, in your league, then having seven, eight uh, pitchers who, as you say, maybe swing men may may not have a job today, but you know having a bunch of the Dodgers pitchers, for example, um, you know who who may may not have a clear path to um, you know, Ross Stripling's the perfect example. Love the skills. Most likely, unless something goes bad in spring training, will open the season without a starting job. And yet, I feel pretty confident, uh, confident that at some point, he's going to get um, 85 to 120 good quality innings that will help every team out there. I just don't know when they're going to come. As long as your, your roster is big enough, rostering Ross Stripling is a great move, and it'll just work itself out. When, you, when he's starting, you'll slot him in. When he's not, you hopefully have somebody else. And, it, and there's kind of a two-way uh, street here because if the league you're playing in has very large reserve lists, the one I just drafted in the other night has 17 reserve slots, and it's more common, I think, to have four or six even in mixed leagues. And the the flip side of each of those is if there's very small reserve lists, there's going to be a very large free agent pool. And if there's very large reserve lists, there's going to be a very small free agent pool, which means that 
uh, in a way, if you're if you're encumbered with a small reserve list, you can at least look forward to having some opportunities in the free agent pool. But it really behooves you to get busy in April and May to try to land whatever you think is going to be a workable thing to get the best possible use out of those uh, out of those reserve slots. It's a great point because we've all played in AL or NL only leagues where on a on a Sunday afternoon you're looking at the Fab uh, list. And literally, there is one catcher who had three at-bats last uh, week, and that's the only player available, and there is nothing to bid on. We've all been there, and it's frustrating. Oh, it's really frustrating, and especially as the as baseball itself has transitioned from having, you know, 14 hitters, 11 pitchers to, in some cases, the reverse. If you're playing in an American League or National League-only league, by the time the draft is over, the free agent pool is almost literally zeroed out for hitters mm-hmm. yeah there's no playing time and and until until they introduce the dh in the national league in 2022 or whenever it happens uh, i'm not sure that's changing and so should leagues I, i've been advocating this for years leagues should start thinking about adjusting the 14-9 hitter pitcher mix in only leagues because it's just not representative of what goes on in baseball anymore I think it's not representative of what goes on in baseball anymore, and it also it really takes away a big part of the game that is should be like in mixed leagues is part of the skill managing your fab budget, figuring out who to pick up and who to drop. In 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 a traditional twelve team fourteen nine roster, that for for all the people who say oh no the real game is AL only, it's like it's partly the real game, and yet that part of the game the free agency. It's gone because, like, you're all bidding on um, garbage most weeks. Or the odd guy who comes over from the National League, and then there's that, which raises what some people call a, a strategic question. Uh, in that, should you should you be bidding on players as you need them through the year, or hoarding your fab in case there's a big crossover guy? And to me, I, I don't know that that's not as interesting as managing your fab throughout the year because there's players that you can actually afford to buy. And the other problem I find with the uh, with the current setup with 14 hitters, clean, and everybody knows that the hitter pool is going to be cleaned out is it really introduces a much bigger measure of luck into the outcome of the of the race. Because if you get an injury to a key guy, you're finished. There's nothing you can do about it because in mixed leagues, there's this theory that says the slot has value. If the guy gets hurt, you're going to get the replacement guy's stats, so it's not like you're losing everything. But in, a, in an only league, you are losing everything. If that guy's out, you're zeroing that slot. And if he's out for the year, you're zeroing the slot for the year. And that seems to introduce an unwelcome, to me anyway, amount of luck into, the, into deciding the outcome. A hundred percent, and it's the reason why in a mixed league, a guy like Francisco Lindor, who let, let, let's assume that Lindor misses the first two, three weeks of the season. In a mixed league, you manage that. You just pick up a shortstop who may not be a great shortstop, but will be a serviceable shortstop. You get Brandon Crawford for the first three weeks of the season, so you're getting some stats for those first three weeks. In an AL uh, league, you an AL only league, you've spent whatever it costs to bring uh, to buy Lindor. Who the heck are you you picking up on your reserve draft to fill in for Lindor? And that's at the beginning of the season, assuming your draft or your auction hasn't happened yet, and you know about the injury. As you say, if it happens on May first, there is nothing you can do. 
or April 4th for that matter. You know, it, it can be really bad. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Rob Silver from Baseball Prospectus and the Launch Angle Podcast. Uh, and before we talk about some of the stuff you've been writing at Baseball Prospectus, how does a guy go be, from being a 15-year-old fantasy baseball player to being a writer at uh, Baseball Prospectus, one of the premier analytical uh, products ever? I assume they asked everybody else and, and they were unavailable, so they, they were stuck with me. Uh, I, the first time I played the NFBC, my wife bought me an entry for my 30th birthday, and flew, we flew down to Vegas for my 30th birthday and played the NFBC, which was a really nice gift uh, that she got me. Uh, and, yeah, I know the, the folks at, uh, at BP were looking for some new writers this year. Uh, I had the podcast with Jeff Zimmerman already. I hadn't done uh, any writing, and I was flattered that they asked, and so I said yes. And how did you get into the analytics? Was it just strictly something you did to make yourself a better fantasy player? Uh, like a lot of uh, geeky kids, I was reading Bill James as a kid. I was reading Ron Chandler uh, as a as a teenager uh, when uh, when the forecaster and then the website started. So I've been in it. Like it just I, you know, I geek out on it for a long time. So it's it's I don't remember a time when it wasn't part of my. Um, kind of baseball analysis, how I, I thought about uh, the game. So it's, uh, it's something, something that I've always been interested in. Were you good at math in school? I was pretty good at math. That helps. Yeah. No, I, I, uh, I was the annoying kid who would finish all the math problems that the teacher would be writing on the blackboard just as she finished writing them, and then she'd make me go read a book in the corner while all the other kids finished doing the, the math problems. I was that annoying kid. Well, I'll just say this. You and I have more in common than I realized. <laughs> well, I've been reading your work at Baseball Prospectus, and you have a really interesting series going at Prospectus that you're contributing to. It's called Tale of the Tape, and uh, your analysts are taking deep dives, and you look at two players of comparable, comparable reputations, the same positions, and similar ADPs. How do you approach these direct one-on-one -on -one analytical comparisons versus the broader sort of global analysis that goes on? Well, it's, I mean, it's trying, to, it's trying to create little debates that you have with yourself um, that in real life you need to have, right? If you're, if you're trying to decide between player A and, or player B, um, you need to do the analysis. So, I, I, you know, they're, they're all close. If you were picking a guy, uh, you know, a superstar and a scrub, it's not much of a debate, and it would be a pretty um, silly uh, article, obviously. Um, but it's, it's fun. People like debates. Uh, so the, the, that's, how they, that's how the kids roll. That they, they, like, uh, they like clashes these days. I was really interested in the comparison between Michael Conforto of the Mets and Yaziel Puig, and this one was interesting to me because I really didn't think they were that close, but they really are close. What were the key points for you in making the analysis of Conforto versus Puig? Well, I mean, so I mean, interestingly, the forecaster this year has both of them with uh, massive upsides. I think Puig it was upside, you know, thirty home runs, twenty stolen bases. Uh, with Conforto's upside 40 uh, home runs. So, so you guys uh, see the potential upside. With Puig, it's in Cincinnati, assuming he plays every day, assuming there's no platoon issues. Um, I, don't think it's, I don't think that the, uh, the forecaster upside of 30 home runs, 20 stolen bases, is that much of a stretch. That's not a black unicorn type of uh, projection uh, for him. And I, I love Puig at his cost. It's, it's, it's going up as draft season uh, goes on. 
but I, I think that there's still a long way for him to go. Like he's, he's inching into the fifth round now, pick 75 uh, kind of thing uh, in the new year. Uh, I, I think that's still a really good uh, buy. Conforto's a trickier one because a year ago at this time, smart people who, who know uh, sports injuries were trying to convince me that Conforto had a degenerative shoulder injury and his whole career was going to be knocked off track um, because of that. Uh, luckily, they were very wrong about that. And I don't think folks fully appreciate, therefore, how miraculous is probably a little bit strong, but how impressive his season was last year given the severity of the injury that he was coming uh, back from. So the projection models, the steamer, the bats, Pakoda, those kinds of things, they see it as a clear Puig uh, win. And, and usually that's pretty compelling for me. I think the projection models are a little bit low on Conforto because they don't fully take into account the severity of his injury. And there is no player right now going outside the top 75, 80, who I would, if, if you ask me, make a bet on who's going outside the top 75 now, who would be going inside the top 25 next year at this time, Conforto would be my pick. I think he's a superstar in the making, and I think he will be, um, I think next year we'll, we will see him very differently from how we see him right now, which is a long way of saying it, I'd love both of them uh, this year. I think Conforto's upside is potentially spectacular, but Puig's is pretty good too. And, of course, a lot of it will depend on where you were at the point in the draft. If you needed speed, obviously you've got to look a little harder at Puig. Uh, another tale of the tape was between two first basemen, Freddie Freeman and Paul Goldschmidt. Uh, Goldschmidt is typically going a few picks ahead of Freddie Freeman, eight or nine or so in what I've been seeing. And it's similar to the Conforto-Puig situation. There's not a lot to choose between them. They're both terrific players. And you called it a coin flip, and, and I think that's pretty much true. What happened when you flipped your analytical coin? So uh, it's less analytics. I mean, the, the shocking thing to me was if you, if, if you, if you, if you just think about um, um, Goldschmidt versus Freeman straight up, uh, what's the difference? I think most people would say, well, Goldschmidt runs and Freeman doesn't. So that's why, why Goldschmidt, beyond being a spectacular hitter, that's obviously been what's separated him over the last half decade seven years, his, his career has been, man, you get a great hitting first baseman who also chips in a bunch of stolen bases. And even me, before I, I dove into this one, didn't appreciate Freddie Freeman stole more bases than Paul Goldschmidt uh, last year. Uh, I think that surprises a lot of people. I'm not sure that Paul Goldschmidt's speed returns. He's always been kind of a sneaky, fast stolen base guy. He's not a burner. He's a smart base runner who's obviously a great athlete, and that gave him the speed. In St. Louis, uh, in a contract year, this is all narrative street stuff. I'm, I, I don't think you can pay for, uh, for double-digit stolen bases. You're also not buying Freeman uh, for, for double-digit stolen bases. With Freeman, again, as good a hitter as he is, I do worry a little bit about the power dip from last year. I think my you know, rational brain thinks that it's noisy and that his power will bounce back. But 23 home runs over a massive amount of playing time, it's not bad, uh, but it's not elite. Um, and so it's really close, therefore. 
I think I take Freddie Friedman over Paul Goldschmidt, but if I'm sitting at the draft table, I take my full minute thinking about the two of them because they're both so good, and I don't really think there's a right or wrong answer with the two of them. Is there any concern St. Louis is not notorious as a running team or it hasn't been the last little while? Arizona is not either, but uh, is a little better in that regard, closer to league average, uh, St. Louis a bit more behind. Do you worry about the team context with Goldschmidt moving to a team that's a little more station-to-station? Absolutely. I mean, that's that's the thing. There are some teams he could have been traded to where um, the green light is clearly on. St. Louis is not one of those teams. So... You know, he's 31 now, seven stolen bases last year. It wouldn't shock me if we woke up in October and he stole 12, 15 bases. But given the nature of stolen bases, you're almost better projecting him low uh, than counting on double-digit stolen bases. And, and if, because if you project it low, you still, you still are in a mindset of, I need to go find my speed. Maybe I'll, get, uh, I'll be happy and surprised that I'll get uh, some upside speed with Goldschmidt. If you're counting on 15 steals, I mean, his stolen base the last three years have gone 32-18-7. So what's the next number in that pattern? It could be a weighted average of the three, and it's, you know, 14-15. It's very possible. It also could be four or five, though, is the problem. Right. It's hard to tell a trend from uh, from just a, a random walk. Random, random numbers in random seasons, yeah. In another uh, tale of the tape, you put your microscope on two pretty good third basemen who have been bitten by injuries, Josh Donaldson and Will Myers. And before we get to the specifics of that battle, as an analyst, how do you account for injuries, current injuries, past injuries, when you're doing your player assessments and valuations? Uh, it depends. It depends on the nature of the injury and whether they're batter or, or pitcher. Uh, my my podcast uh, uh, colleague and Baseball HQ contributor, Jeff Zimmerman, has done a ton of work and he comes to the conclusion that, that the whole concept of injury-prone hitters is a bit of a myth. The exception is there are some recurring injuries, like shoulder injuries uh, for hitters. Uh, pitchers are a different story. Pitchers, if, if, you've, if you've had injuries, it, it, the odds of it coming back are, are a lot higher. Um, so, for example, you, you mentioned off the top, you know, Giancarlo Stanton, he got the label of injury-prone from a lot of kind of fluky injuries, and um, there's, there, there was never really a reason with those injuries to project for the next season that he was likely to have another injury. Um, Josh Donaldson, though, that calf injury, and we talked about this at First Pitch Arizona um, this year. Somebody talked about uh, Josh Donaldson. Calf injuries are old man injuries, and they don't just go away. Uh, they, they come back a lot. And I, do, I don't worry about Josh Donaldson looking awesome taking batting practice right now. I don't worry about him. Um, you know, he'll hit three home runs in the first spring training game, and we'll start shooting up. I worry about him getting through six months of the season with that calf injury. Well, you call the, this calf injury of Donaldson's an old man injury, and in baseball terms, he's an older fellow, not an old man by sort of social terms. But I wonder, what do you think of the calf injury with Lindor? Because he's a young player, but it's still a calf injury, and I've, I've read and I've heard that calf injuries are really problematic for elite athletes, regardless of their age. Absolutely. I am, I'm not a medical doctor. I don't pretend to be a medical doctor on television or on podcasts. Uh, but I do worry about two things. One, that he, well, three things. One, that he gets healthy but um, 
doesn't run as much uh, to try to nurse uh, the injury. Two is simply a recurrence because you can be, uh, my understanding is you can be healed enough that you're able to step on a baseball field, but it's still tight and the likelihood, the percentage likelihood every time you, you do anything athletic of it recurring is higher than the average person. And then three is a compensatory uh, issue so that you, because of the tight calf, you hurt your knee or you hurt a hamstring or something else because you're not quite running the way you're built to, to run. So I think that it's not, it's not black or white. It's not Lindor was awesome and now he stay away from him. He has leprosy uh, and is dangerous. It's uh, he was awesome. There is now uh, a bunch more risk than he was before. And it's not therefore don't draft him. It's you need to build that into your, to your valuation and in terms of how you approach him. And there are so many good hitters available in that first round, early second round, that you need to ask yourself based on, on your team, based on your approach, based on your, your risk tolerance, do I want him or Freddie Freeman? And whereas three weeks ago that would kind of be an absurd question, well, Lindor, like it's hard to do a valuation where uh, Freeman is a higher than Lindor. Now I think it's more of a coin toss. In your own personal valuations, Lindor was going fourth or fifth, somewhere around there in a lot of drafts. And then after the injury, how much did he fall in your estimation, assuming that you had him four, five, six, somewhere up there? No, I did, and I'm just looking on my computer. I have him 17th overall uh, now. So if I'm at the back half of a draft and he slips through the first round and I'm, I'm at the turn, I'm, I'm having a conversation with myself. But again, the problem is there are a lot of good hitters available. But yeah, so so seventeenth is still really good. It's much lower than fourth or fifth, though. Yeah, it's almost a full round difference. So getting back to Donaldson and Myers, uh, you 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 said in your analysis that Myers' sole advantage pretty much was the stolen base potential. How significant does that stolen base edge have to be for Myers to be a better value or a more productive player, considering Donaldson's many other attributes and advantages? Um, it, well, it's potentially uh, game-changing, as you know. Like, if he gets back up to 20 or higher stolen bases with comparable power uh, to Donaldson, from just a valuation perspective, uh, that's a massive change. Um, and while Myers has obviously had injury issues of his, uh, of his own, uh, it feels weird to say that Will Myers is the quote-unquote safer player I think that if you're if if you're for if you're in an an NL only league for uh, for example where uh, per our conversation replacement value is non-existent is is a black hole, um, I think Will Myers is a safer play than Josh Donaldson uh, this year. You are far more likely, I think, I would argue, to get at least 500 plate appearances from Will Myers than Josh Donaldson. That being said, Josh Donaldson was one of the top five, seven hitters in baseball not that long ago. So the upside of a healthy Josh Donaldson um, is, is that guy in a really good Atlanta lineup hitting second every single day, and he's a guy, if he stays healthy and, and gets 700 plate appearances, which he did routinely with Toronto two years ago, let's not have recency bias, it's not that long ago, uh, has the potential to be a top 15, top 20 uh, hitter again. Uh, this year, and it's not that much of a stretch of an imagination. So there's a massive uh, range of outcomes with Donaldson. There is with Myers, too, but I think it's a little bit tighter. 
there's one other thing about Donaldson I'm curious what you think about, and that is not only did he have the calf injury, he also had a shoulder problem. And I don't know whether it was, you know, the result of a kinesthetic chain, like you said before, where, you know, he has a sore calf, so he starts altering his throwing motion or vice versa. There's all of those things are interconnected. But this is a player who has had two issues, the calf, which could imp, uh, interfere with his ability to swing hard because you generate your power from your lower half. And it could also... Uh, influence his ability to play in the field and in the national league if he doesn't play in the field he doesn't play so if his shoulder gets upset he loses playing time if his calf recurs he loses playing time is this risk compounded by the second injury a hundred percent and like as, as a blue jays fan uh it was painful before he finally acknowledged the shoulder injury at the beginning of the season last year and went on the dl watching him throw like he literally could not throw the ball across the diamond anymore when he came back uh, and then went to Cleveland, the shoulder looked healthy, uh, and he was making the throw. That's one thing in spring training. You won't know about the calf injury because Josh Donaldson isn't the slowest player in baseball. He used to be, he hustles, but he's not fast. And if I'm Atlanta, I tell him, you know, you don't need to run all out on those ground balls. So I don't think you'll you'll know about the calf injury. The shoulder injury will be pretty obvious. If he's making throws from third base, uh, it, it'll look good. So there's the risk of recurrence, but he wasn't making throws uh, last spring training. Um, his bat speed looked a little slow to me uh, when he came back. I think it was probably rust um, with Cleveland, but on good high fastballs uh, that he used to pound, um, he was slow. Uh, so that that I'd watch a little bit in spring training uh, too, but the risk with Donaldson is ultimately the six month season. I, I think if he's healthy, he still has every uh, every reason to think that he will be extraordinary. Uh, I'm just very skeptical he can stay healthy. I'm skeptical too, and the and the reason is more because of the shoulder than because of the calf. And I understand the problem with the calf, but you mentioned that uh, hitter injuries tend to more to be the fluky kind of injury, something that happens and never happens again. Like John Carlos Stanton was an example you mentioned, or guys who run into fences like Mike Trout. All of those injuries are not sort of chronically related to the activity on the field. Pitchers are another thing. You don't want a guy with a sore shoulder, but throwing the ball as a defensive player, is part of the game, and that worries me that because he has to make throws, uh, as many throws as there are, and it's a tough throw to make a lot of times, that that shoulder, the possibility of a recurrence of the shoulder injury might be greater than we think because he's going to have to use the shoulder to play the game properly on defense. For sure, and it's a percentage play. Uh, none of us know. Josh Donaldson doesn't know. I don't think Alex Anthopoulos uh, knows. So it's, just, it's, a, it's entirely a percentage play, and... It's for you as a fantasy owner to figure out what you think the percentage likelihood of him playing six months, five months, four months, one month, nothing is, and therefore what, how, how you value that, what price you'd pay in your auction or draft pick in a draft, and how that fits with your overall strategy. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Rob Silver from Baseball Prospectus and the Launch Angle Podcast. And... Rob, you're involved in another feature at Baseball Prospectus, early ADP analysis, which is critical to draft planning. And you started with the proposition that we don't value pitchers properly for mixed leagues. What did you mean? It's, yeah, it's a bit of a controversial statement, but I, I've come around on this thinking, which is in mixed leagues. Again, mono leagues are completely different. In mixed leagues, when you do evaluation, whether it's HQ, whether it's BP, uh, who, or whether it's me sitting at my computer, 
for a season worth of stats. 180 innings, 13 wins, and so on, and it shoots out $17. The assumption there is that I had that player in my lineup from day one to the end of the season and just ran with him, and those are the stats I accrued. Except the reality is it's a weekly game that we play in weekly transaction uh, leagues. And while the Max Scherzers of the world in practice, it doesn't matter who he's facing. It doesn't matter what the week is. If he's healthy, you have him in your lineup. And for him, therefore, the valuation is perfectly accurate. But for 90% of the pitcher pool, it's not the way it works. It's really 26 weeks of transactions for nine roster spots. And guys go in and out. They go to your bench. They go into your lineup. They get dropped into the free agent pool. They get picked, up, uh, picked back up. And what we really want to do is capture how have I used each of my nine pitcher slots over 26 weeks. And 17 different pitchers may have contributed to my seventh roster uh, pitching roster spot. And therefore, doing a valuation of any one of those 17 is interesting, but it doesn't actually reflect the value that they contributed to me at all. And because of the nature of that weekly game, I don't play fantasy football any, uh, much anymore, but in fantasy football, everybody knows that. Everybody gets that it's, it's a weekly game, it's 13 weeks of the regular season, and you can't get caught up in accumulators who just accumulate stats over the full season. I don't think as fantasy baseball players, we wrap our heads around that very well. So for example, going back, the easiest example is those Dodger pitchers. Those Dodger pitchers, uh, the valuation doesn't fully capture their worth to me, in part because when, they're, when Stripling isn't pitching, I, I don't just leave him on my active roster. Um, I have lots of different guys, that optionality. But the flip side is there's an opportunity cost. He's a roster spot. So I, that's what I meant by I don't think traditional valuation fully captures or properly captures um, how pitching actually works in the game that we play. And again, a lot of it's going to depend on your league setup because if you have a lot of reserve spots and you have you know Ross Stripling plus three or four guys you're okay with on a matchup basis or a platoon basis, that kind of thing, you can be a little more confident that Ross Stripling is going to give you X amount of work or value factoring in the when he doesn't pitch. You've got a, a, some kind of value from the slot that you know about in advance because you set it up that way. 100%. But if you're, if you're always benching guys against Colorado, if you have a rule that unless you're one of the top 10, 10 starting pitchers in baseball, when they go into Colorado, I am putting them on my bench. Their season-long stat captures those Colorado starts, but they don't affect you in any way. So are you, are you, they are more valuable to you than the season-long valuation would indicate. That's the kind of thing that I was getting at. Yeah, that's interesting because if you did have a, a, a strategy that you simply were not going to start anybody in Colorado, unless it's, you know, your sales or your Scherzers, those kind of guys, but anybody you're sure you're going to stream out of your lineup, perhaps when you do your valuation, you should just go in and zero out any Colorado starts in Colorado that they had the previous year and just pretend they didn't happen. Yeah, and, and, and the challenge is how the heck could any of us, any website, any publication possibly do that for the world. So I understand why if I'm running Baseball HQ, if I'm running Baseball Prospectus, 
I can't sell a, 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 a valuation that does what I'm saying it needs to do. So I'm not saying there's an answer. I'm just pointing out what the problem is. It would be difficult. I was just thinking about it because you'd have to go through line by line in the projection and alter it to reflect the reduced amount of innings you expect the guy to have in Colorado, which he might not even have. I mean, a National League West guy's going to have, you can't avoid the, the starts in Colorado, but a lot of the other guys in other divisions, especially uh, interleague type situations, it's really hard to say how many you should discount for Colorado. The, 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 the Colorado example is an easy example. Here's another one. This season, I would argue, in almost any pitcher who is on a major league roster, if they are facing the Miami Marlins or the Baltimore Orioles, is worthwhile starting any week of the season. They are going to be better than your sixth or seventh uh, pitcher. I don't care. You don't need to tell me their name. You don't need to tell me any of their stats or abilities. If they're facing Miami or Baltimore, they should be in your lineup just for that one start, and then you should move on because... If it's if it's Jason Vargas, you probably don't want him for his next start against the you know the Washington Nationals. Um, how do you capture that value? That just start everybody against Miami and Baltimore. Like no valuation would say Vargas is a good pitcher that one week, just week seven of the season. You really want him for that Miami start in Miami. Certainly makes National League East uh, pitchers look a little more attractive if you're kind of stuck trying to d decide between Scherzer and Sale uh, uh, type of thing. Although Sale gets the Orioles at least, but he, but some of the other ones are a little tougher. Uh, the the analysis that you do is based on comparing ADPs with the Picota projections for all the starters, and Picota is Baseball Prospectus's proprietary projections engine for people not familiar. One of the surprises in the Picota rankings you found was Alex Reyes of St. Louis. Uh, what is Reyes's ranking, and what did you think about it? So for, uh, for what I did with Picota, which, so it's, this is just me doing this, is they, they like every projection, have uh, different starting pitchers projected for different uh, number of innings, as they should. Uh, playing time is tricky to project. Uh, humans are better at projecting playing time than algorithms or, or models, uh, but uh, they do that. But then I like taking the projection and prorating it over uh, the same number of innings for everybody. So I do it over 180 uh, innings for every pitcher. It's another way of saying um, fantasy value per inning pitch, uh, just to see kind of a true talent. And when you do that, what Pakoda comes up with is the best pitcher is Chris Sale. That's not surprising. He is the best pitcher in baseball. The only question about him is, is health and how many innings you're, you're going to get. Number two is DeGrom. Again, not a surprise. Number three is Max Scherzer. So the top three are the top three. And the fourth best pitcher in baseball per inning pitch is Alex Reyes. And that was shocking to me, not because I don't know that Alex Reyes is a great prospect, has great talent, but there are a lot of good pitchers in baseball, and they have Alex Reyes as the fourth uh, best pitcher in baseball per inning pitch. Now, to be crystal clear so I don't get nasty tweets and, and emails, they're only projecting Alex Reyes in actual Pakoda, I think, for like 80 innings uh, or something. So it's not that they're saying he is going to be the fourth best pitcher. It's just per inning he's the fourth best pitcher. That opened my eyes a little bit. Certainly makes him an interesting speculative play because your mind starts to wander and you start thinking, boy, if he did get 100 innings or 120, wow, all of a sudden. Uh, well, and especially with Carlos Martinez's uh, injury, 
they have lots of options. They're the Cardinals. Like they have the voodoo magic ability to find pitchers that we've never even heard of uh, yet who will suddenly turn uh, turn good. Um, but they're it's not that crazy to see a scenario not where he pitches 180 innings. I don't think that they, given his health history, that they would let him get anywhere near there. But 100, 120 innings of him could be 100, 120 truly elite innings. And he's going way later in drafts than some of the other guys who have, uh, he's going picked like 200 in NFBC. So he's not free. Um, there is a cost associated with him. But you can certainly, if you buy that level of talent, see a scenario where even only in 100, 120 innings, he could be worth a lot more than that. Another surprisingly high-ranking Rob goes to Chris Paddock. What's your take on this San Diego rookie? Chris Paddock is beloved by every projection system, steamer, the bat. I have never seen a starting pitcher projection for a guy who has never pitched in the big leagues before as good as Chris Paddock. Uh, none, none that I remember. And what's interesting is while he's certainly a prospect, you know, all the prospect lists um, have him on it, he is nowhere near the top uh, in terms of pitchers. And yet the projection models, looking at his minor league stats, doing major league equivalency uh, translations, just love him. He's pitching in San Diego. There's, you know, it, the, the, they have some interesting uh, starting pitchers on the, on the major league roster uh, right now. But the path to playing time, probably not right out of spring training, but pretty quickly out, uh, in the season. Like, you know, beating out Luis Perdomo and Eric Lauer and Brian Mitchell for spots is not, is, you're not climbing Mount Everest uh, here if you're him. So, you know, there are reasons to worry about rookie pitchers, but when you see projection after projection come out with uh, this optimistic projection, it's worth uh, tuning your mind to it, and he is going very late. Uh, so he's a reserve pick. He's in the 400s, I think, uh, in the NFBC. Uh, so you can get him very late in your draft. At 439, I have him right now in their, their ADP. So you can, you can stash him and see when he gets called up. I got Steven Matz in the HQ Writers League uh, draft just the other day for a dollar, and I'm going to guess you approve of that. Uh, what do you like about Steven Matz this season? We need to get over our the Mets ruined pitchers bias. Uh, he's uh, like because there, there's good reason for the bias, like lots of biases. There, it's not that we just pulled it out of thin air, but I think he's um, you know Zach Wheeler is getting lots of love, and there's good reason. Zach Wheeler was spectacular in the second half uh, of last uh, season, but you're not getting Zach Wheeler like everybody knows about Zach Wheeler. You're not getting him cheap. Steven Matz wasn't quite as good as uh, Zach Wheeler, but if you told me at the end of this season that Steven Matz has had a better season than Zach Wheeler, I wouldn't be shocked. And he's going uh, pick 254 recently in the NFBC. So $1 is a spectacular buy, uh, but like where he's going in drafts, in the National League East, in that ballpark, um, as long as you kind of 
get over the Mets kill starting pitchers uh, thing, uh, I think he's a, a spectacular buy at that point as a starting pitcher. You took a particular focus, Rob, on starting pitchers who help in the whip ratio category, and most of them are the top names that we would all expect. But you also found eight starting pitchers that came from the nether regions of the ADPs. Who are some of these pitchers you identified as potential helpers in whip? So these were Pakoda uh, whip helpers. Some of them uh, shocked the bejeebies out of me. Uh, Nick Pavetta is one that everybody loves, Nick Pavetta, and it bothers me. Uh, it bothers me because we're all so smart. There was a time where, like, you know, Baseball HQ, Ron Chandler would have identified Nick Pavetta, don't believe the 5 ERA, look at the underlying talent, and you'd get him late for $3 in your draft while everybody else thinks he sucks. Um, we're so past that. Nick Pavetta has never had good actual stats in terms of the stuff we play with, but everybody knows the underlying talent, and he has tremendous helium. So he's a, a good uh, whip healer, uh, whip healer, whip helper uh, later in drafts. The one that shot Stephen Matz on this list, the one that shocked me because I had left him for dead and moved on, Pakoda really likes him, is Julio Teheran. And... He's, he doesn't mean he's somebody I'm going to draft, but they have him for a 1.18 whip. And the, I, I'm at the point where I'm like, that is nuts. How can they have Julio Tehran as a 1.18 whip? And then I looked, and he actually had a 1.17 uh, whip last year. So as bad as Julio Tehran is in my mind, and in some, uh, in some, in some ways he is, uh, is actually just saying he's going to replicate the whip that he had last year, which, which that's why it's a useful exercise for me, is we all have our biases. We all have our uh, perceptions of players. Pakoda doesn't hate your team. He doesn't hate any players. It's, an, it's, a, it's a system. Uh, and seeing that open, I'm not saying I'm drafting Julio Teheran, but at least it opened my mind to the possibility. Yeah, it's a good reality check, uh, even though it's not real. It's virtual, but it does get you out of some mindsets that might be a little off. You mentioned earlier, Freddie Freeman can't steal bases like Paul Goldschmidt. And then it turns out, except that he did. And uh, sometimes it's those uh, dispassionate uh, algorithm-based systems that help you realize the, the errors that you're making. The flip side of helping WHIP is harming it, of course, and you also discuss some fairly important starting pitchers in the later rounds who could hurt a team's WHIP, and that includes a couple of tout favorites. Uh, Andrew Heaney, Tyler Glasnow, and Shane Bieber have all been getting some love from touts on, on the podcasts and on the websites. What is it about these pitchers, and what is your cautionary note about them? Yeah, all of them Pakoda sees as having uh, a 1-3 or higher whip. Bieber in particular, because of his command, surprised me. Pakoda does not love, uh, Pakoda does not have the Bieber fever, uh, as, as, they, as the kids uh, say. Uh, and really, I love Andrew Heaney so much. Uh, I, know, I know the forecaster loved Andrew Heaney with a big upside uh, uh, prediction. Uh, Pakoda does not share uh, this love. Tyler Glass now, a lot of people think, can take a big uh, step forward. Nathan Uvalde, uh, if you watch the playoffs, you know what you saw. A lot of people think him, with full season in Boston of health, could do it. Uh, Mike Clevenger, they have for a very high uh, whip again this year, so you may be paying for the strikeouts. Again, I'm not saying it's the Bible. It's not Moses coming down with, with the commandments that thou must have obey. 
but it's interesting seeing guys that like we we expect Dylan Bundy to be on this kind of a list, and he is. Um, you don't necessarily expect uh, Bieber and Teeny and and Glasnow and those guys uh, to be there. So I just think it's interesting. And then you can you can dive a little bit deeper and see if you agree or disagree. And it's your fantasy team. You can do whatever you want. You also said, though, Rob, you disagree with Picota's projection on Heaney. Why is that? Uh, I, 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 I can't, I, I'd love to have a conversation with Picota and ask what they see that I don't. I think Andrew Heaney is, does it, unlike some of these other guys that people uh, tout who need to actually, you know, if only his slider is more consistent, if he can only start throwing this pitch more instead of this pitch, then it could all come together for him. I look at Heaney and say he just needs to do what he did last year, and I think if he gets a little bit luckier, then he's going to have an elite season coming out of that. And Pakoda looks at last season and sees something that was fluky and like, but but not just fluky. I think their current projection for him is like a four seven ERA or something. Like they think he's bad, and I don't think Andrew Heaney's bad at all. I think he's really really good. Rob, this has been great so far. Uh, let's take a breather. Come back in a couple of minutes. We'll talk about the Launch Angle podcast and get your boons and banes for 2019. Sound like a plan? For sure. Rob Silver is an analyst with Baseball Prospectus and the Launch Angle podcast. We'll return to our interview with Rob in a minute or so, but right now let me once again give you some examples of why I like to call BaseballHQ.com the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Facts and Flukes column, analyst Brandon Cruz looks at five intriguing 2019 draft targets, including Scooter Jeanette, Joanne Moncada, and Trevor May. In the Bullpen Buyer's Guide, columnist Doug Dennis looks at 20 lemur relievers you might want to keep in mind. And in the Market Pulse, analyst Matt Cederholm looks at the outfield market for this draft season. And those are just three articles among literally dozens. Content is falling onto the Baseball HQ site like snow in Arizona, which is not to suggest that anything's written by flakes. Anyway, these three articles, just a small sample of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. And that's not even mentioning the excellent draft tools at BaseballHQ.com. All goes together, and that's why I call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview. My pleasure once more to be joined by Rob Silver from Baseball Prospectus and the Launch Angle Podcast. Rob, welcome back. Great to be back. Along with Jeff Zimmerman, you're part of the Launch Angle Podcast, and you guys have been really pumping up the volume this season. How often do you guys put out the podcast? Once a week, but we kept going all winter. We made the decision uh, at the end of the World Series that we just weren't going to take a break. So we, we did a live uh, episode at uh, First Pitch Forum in, uh, in Arizona, and we've been going all winter once a week. And I, even cr- for Christmas, we pre-recorded episodes. So we've, uh, we've been pretty good at keeping it going every week this, uh, this offseason. How did you like doing that live one at First Pitch Arizona? It was a ton of fun uh, having an audience uh having a couple of beers the funny story was my i have a seven-year-old son and there was there was beer consumed while we were uh recording the podcast i know we're, we're all professionals but but we were having uh, a good time and I, I i i occasionally will swear on the podcast so my son uh at home missed me uh he's a, a wonderful boy so my my wife saw that i had tweeted that i had recorded a podcast 
and she decided it was a good idea for for her and my son to sit down and listen to the podcast together while I was still in Arizona after it got posted, which they had never done. They'd never listened to the podcast ever before. So they, they, they were bathed in glory listening to me, you know, getting drunk and swearing on the podcast with, for, with my seven-year-old. He thought it was great. She was not as impressed. I don't imagine she was, no. Uh, on a recent edition of The Launch Angle, I heard you say something really interesting. Uh, this really got me, one of the most interesting things I've heard this entire preseason, and it has to do with the quality of the player pool after the big three, Trout, Betts, and Ramirez. You said you could put the names of the next 20 or so players into a hat and pull them at random, and that's really interesting. What led you to that observation? It's, it's that I think that... Um this year, if you asked me off the top uh, observations of the player pool, this would have been a good one to have uh, thought of at the time. Um, the, the, the most of the first round is as fluid as I ever remember it. So Jose Ramirez is going third in most drafts, but I can make an argument not to. Look at his second half uh, last year. Uh, it was not an elite second half. Max Scherzer, like, I could go down through every single one of these players and make a case why they're going too early or why they're going too late. And it's why when I, it drives me crazy when I see people saying, I can't believe so-and-so lasted all the way to pick 14. And it's like, well, somebody has to last till pick 14, 15, 16, 20. Like, I look at who's going in the second round, and I talked about it, Paul Goldschmidt, Trevor Story, Bryce Harper, Aaron Judge, Freddie Freeman. These are all great hitters. You absolutely can make a case why they're first-round uh, values. There are players, I, so when I say you can put them all in the hat, I obviously wouldn't draft that way. I have preferences. There are some guys I'm fading, like there's, there's one in particular I don't think is as good as uh, the others or certainly as riskier than the others, but I could easily be wrong, and you, could, you can absolutely make that argument. So that maybe is an argument to be at the back half, so you get two of these players. Who's the top guy you're fading? Javi Baez. Uh, I love Javi Baez. I think he's as a baseball fan. I love watching him. Like I like, I, he's he's a ton of fun. But um, and again, it's not black or white. It's not. I think Javi Baez is trash this year. Don't have him anywhere near your team. I just think that everything went right last year, and his plate approach, the downside is much. Um, steeper than the other players going in that range. So he is the only, if, if, we, if, you, if you said, Rob, we're going to do a fun draft, but this is how we're actually going to draft, you have to put all the names in the, in the pot and we'll just pull a name for you, I would say, I'm okay with that, but it can't be heavy bias. Uh, he's the one guy I, I really, um, I, I, I would not take of that crowd. Be a pretty interesting way to run a draft, wouldn't it? Where you can, uh, the if the players were pre-selected and you could, you had to draft by drawing out of a hat, but you could eliminate one name out of, out of each uh, out of each chunk. Be a, an interesting format for a league, and certainly run more quickly. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how many people would pay the entrance fee necessarily for that draft, but uh, would save on time for draft prep certainly. We've known for a while, Rob, that players are clustered in these tiers, we call them, down the draft. If, if you're looking at, like, ninth-round guys, they all seem pretty fungible, names-in-a-hat-type guys. Does the fact that that idea has migrated all the way up to the top, at least for this season, affect how we should be thinking about our draft strategies, our draft planning, and even our Kentucky Derby selections if we are playing in leagues where we have that option? 
can, just so people don't that don't lose their mind. I'm not saying they're all the same. I think that we you, what we do is we spend a lot of time sweating the differences between them, and with good reason. So you need to find differences. In terms of your question, I I. I am not a huge fan of tier drafting. Other people swear by it, and, and good for them if it works for them. Uh, I like, by the time I get to the draft, I like the precision of projections, knowing full well that it's not a precise uh, thing and, and that there are ranges of outcomes. I, where I do use that is with statistics, so categories. So I like where I, I have a pretty good sense of pockets of saves. So if I don't get a closer here, then two rounds later, there are three closers, and then there are five closers here, and so I have that sense. Speed, similarly. If I don't get speed in the first round, then these are this is where I can find speed, uh, and, and I, I have it that way, but I'm, I, don't, I personally don't draft with, with tiers. Are there any adjustments or uh, strategic implications for this widespread of top talent at the top of the draft for auction leagues? Um, yeah, that's, that's a really interesting question. Um, usually, there, in my experience, there is a super premium placed on the top guys. So most, there, in most auctions, not all auctions, but in many auctions, for Trout, for the bets this year, um, they are people pay... Two or three owners go in saying, I want to buy Mike Trout. And therefore, even if it's a star, uh, Stars and Scrubs league in terms of how the, the dollars get distributed, there's a superstar premium that get placed on the top three or four hitters. And the top, you know, the, his, not this year, but in the last five or six years, the Clayton Kershaws. Somebody goes in, or two or three owners go in, saying, I want to buy Clayton Kershaw, and therefore there's a super premium placed on, on that top guy or two guys. I think you could make an argument that, that, that avoid that and go to the next level. And if you want your stars, just don't, you don't need to pay the super premium because there's enough talent at the top that you can get your top two or three guys. And it's strictly anecdotal, but in this Baseball HQ Writers League that I just drafted last week, the uh, Trout and Betts went for 60-plus. Then uh, I took Jose Ramirez for 50 because I thought that's going to be what the premiums are. And all the way down the line, it was about a $10 premium until you got past the guys that you're talking about, these pick them out of a hat, uh, top-level top talent. It was pretty much $10 over market or $10 over true value as projected. And, uh, and then we went into this kind of scrub action a little later on, as I said. Uh, it is pretty interesting how these things are going. Uh, I think Stars and Scrubs is becoming kind of the dominant philosophy in a lot of auctions now there's the and there may be some opportunity to zag while everybody's zigging by waiting and going into the sort of 21 dollar guys and getting them all without premiums for sure especially amongst hitters in another recent podcast you and jeff talked about uh, manny machado signing in san diego how do you think landing in san diego affects machado's fantasy potential um it's Pretty much the worst place he could have gone, uh, which doesn't mean, again, uh, that it necessarily tanks his value. Um, and it's not as... Uh, I was doing a, a podcast with Derek Carty, who does the bat projections. He was talking about this. People have a perception that San Diego's is awful hitting park and Baltimore is this amazing launching, you know, launching pad of a uh, park. 
The truth is that they're actually much closer together. What I think hurts Machado a little bit more is the lineup. San Diego will be better because of his presence, but they're still not a great lineup. So, again, it doesn't tank him. There's just enough other hitters that I like uh, higher than him that there's a pretty good chance I won't get Manny Machado anywhere this, this year. It's interesting that you mentioned the uh, the lineup having a deleterious effect on Machado's potential fantasy value. Does his presence make the lineup any more attractive? Uh, it does, but there's still a bottom ten lineup uh, in baseball, to my to my to my mind. I was just thinking because we talked earlier about the Will Myers versus. Uh, um, Josh Donaldson debate, and I wondered if if you thought that with Machado now in a position to push Myers across a little more frequently, whether his value now eases up a little bit just because he might you know score some more runs, or depending on where he's in the lineup, drive Machado in with some uh, additional opportunities that way. It helps, and and it, it, it there, there there are two separate things. It's a really interesting lineup. Like I like Frenchie Cordero. I like like I like a lot of the guys. Uh, there and obviously Tatis Jr. at some point uh, will will make his uh, debut and as soon as as Vlad Guerrero debuts then Tatis becomes the best prospect in baseball so it's a really interesting uh, lineup uh, I just don't know that for 2020 it's a great lineup or even a good lineup. How about the fact that San Diego tend, tended last year to be a bit more of a running club? Does that augur well for Machado as a stolen base threat? For that, for sure. Again, it's it's the it's the flip side of the Paul Goldschmidt uh, discussion. Uh, it's very, you know, Manny Machado has been such a roller coaster in terms of when he runs and when he doesn't uh, run. Uh, San Diego, you can make a narrative that San Diego is one of the situations if he's hitting second uh, in front of Eric Hosmer. Uh, that he will run more than some other teams he might have signed on. And I, I would nod along. I have a tough time projecting that or buying that. Uh, but, um, but at the end of the season, if he's at 15, 17 stolen bases, that wouldn't surprise me at all. And that, that could certainly make him a nice buy uh, at the end of the first round. Boy, could it ever. <laughs> if, if he got 15 bags, that would make a huge difference, I think. Uh, if I knew in advance that that was going to happen, I think I'd really scale Manny Machado up my list. Uh, on the same show, you guys discussed the less heralded signing of another third baseman, Mike Moustakas, goes back to Milwaukee. So the same question, how does Moustakas re-upping with the Brewers affect his draft value? Uh, it's, it's possibly the best place he could have gone. It's a great ballpark. Uh, for his uh, for his left-handed power bat, and I like Moustakis before the signing, like in a, a generic neutral park. But there were some potential signings where he might not have been a, a true everyday player. I think he will be an everyday player in a really nice lineup in Milwaukee. So if you, you know, there's no one approach to do this, but if you go speed and pitching heavy early in your drafts, and you need to make up power. Uh, Mike Moustakis is a nice option in those, you know, early mid rounds, uh, sixth, seventh round kind of thing to to catch up pretty quickly in some of the power numbers. And we talked about the lineup in San Diego. What about the lineup in Milwaukee? Now that uh, now that Moustakis is in there in the middle of that lineup. Now this is a much better lineup than San Diego's, obviously. Uh, how does Mike Moustakis arriving there affect the way that you look at the other guys in that lineup? 
it, it was already a really good uh, lineup, and I think it's. I think they're going to have a lot of fun in Milwaukee. Uh, we'll see how the pitching ends up uh, doing, but I, I, I love that. I mean, you know, you don't, you don't need me or anybody else to say they, they have a really nice lineup if everybody stays healthy there. It was a different edition of the Launch Angle Pod, but while we're talking about Brewers, you were pretty positive on a recent show about Ryan Braun. What was what was the reasoning there? Um, I think that like you have to count on the fact that Ryan Braun's going to get hurt at some point uh, this season. It's what he does. I think he expects to get hurt at some point uh, this season. But I don't think people appreciate how uh, good Ryan Braun is. And while he's old, um, superstar players do superstar things. And it's we, the, 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 the observation I made, made on the podcast is... Everybody is convincing themselves that Joey Votto, who I love, I'm Canadian, uh, I'm also Canadian, uh, like it, it, I, I think I lose my passport if I say anything bad about Joey Votto. And yet, everybody is convinced at 35 that Joey Votto is going to make a comeback, and last year was just noise, and the power is going to return. He's Joey Votto, of course it's all uh, going to happen. And yet, they look at Ryan Braun, who's also 35, is this broken player who is on the decline phase of his career and, you know, maybe pick 250, I'll take him. And I think there is just as much risk that Joey Votto declines, uh, that last year was the start of uh, his decline. And by decline, I mean he becomes like Joe Maurer, still a really good hitter, still a contact hitter, still does some really impressive uh, things, but the power doesn't return then Ryan Braun is on the decline uh, phase of his career. So that's a convoluted way of saying, by definition, when you're taking a 35-year-old hitter, there is some risk associated with him, especially when he's had back problems, especially when there is you know, health issues involved that are probably not just going to go away. Um, but at his cost, I think he's a tremendous buy right now. And, of course, it's not like the Brewers lack for uh, replacement options if he struggles as well. Speaking of Cincinnati, you talked about Joey Votto. I'm more interested in what you had to say in your Round 12-13 podcast talking about pitching staffs, and you said you thought Cincinnati was really doing a good job building its staff. What, did, what is that you like about what the Reds are doing there? I think they're doing an interesting job, what they're doing with their uh, staff. I think that they... And I could be wrong, but I think that they have a uh, clear, you know, they brought in Sonny Gray, Alex Wood, uh, Tanner Rourke to go with Luis Castillo and Anthony Descalfani. And you hear those names, and if you're not already cringing, you're like, wow, you know, good lineup, but my God, that's uh, ugly. And I think that they had a strategy with their new pitching coach uh, who came over from Milwaukee. Uh, who took who took I would argue less talent in Milwaukee and if you look year by year over his time in Milwaukee they went from near the bottom in runs allowed to right near the top with a not a, you know they had, they had some great arms in the bullpen but not a great staff and that's being polite and the commonality between all five of the starting pitchers that Cincinnati has is they all have one or more really good pitch. And they all have one or more really bad pitch. And they need to throw their really good pitch more, and their bad pitch is less. And um, 
almost all of them, the fastball is a problem. So they either need to start elevating the fastball, using spin rate, and, and using some, some more modern approaches to get a more effective fastball, or they need to stop throwing the fastball as much. Uh, and I can go pitcher by pitcher, uh, and I have, and, and it, it, it gets wonky, and it sounds like spin. Uh, I mean, like in the political spinny sense. I'm not arguing that Alex Wood and Sonny Gray and Luis Castillo and Tanner Work and Anthony Discalfani are going to make people forget about, you know, the great Dodgers rotations through history. But I think that they have an approach, they have a strategy, and it's not crazy to think that it could work out for them. You mentioned the fact that they've uh, introduced a new pitching coach. And uh, in general, how much importance or valuation weight do you put on an organization's ability to effectively prepare its players and deploy them? Um, so I'm usually very skeptical about specifically like the guru pitching coach, uh, uh, who's going to like, who, who's the Svengali who will make everything, uh, happen for a long time. It was, it was, uh, Pittsburgh, it was Ray Searage and we forget like it could, because it's been, we've been talking about it for so long that it's like, why is Ray Searage magical? Only Garrett Cole had to leave Ray Searage to really get as, as good as Ray, as Garrett Cole is, so we cherry pick examples of where it works, and then we we conveniently block block out examples of that prove the exact opposite uh, fact. So I'm I'm skeptical about that, but there's no doubt that there are certain organizations like Houston that are smarter and more advanced than other organizations, and when they make a signing, when they make a move, when a pitcher goes there. Uh, it is worth paying attention and opening your mind to the possibility that they see something, that they have the ability to do something uh, to change that uh, picture. And there are certain other organizations that are the exact opposite. They're shrinking the number of like dumb organizations, but they're still out there. Well, I was going to ask, you mentioned Houston. Uh, Tampa Bay is often mentioned as a, as a team that has pretty interesting and doing what they can to maximize the uh, usefulness of the players that they have and and picking the kind of players that fit into their vision of what they're trying to do. Uh, anybody else pop to mind as an organization that you look at and you think, this is this is an organization I think has has good ideas? Uh, I mean, the Yankees. And, and just because they needed a break, uh, being the evil empire with all the money and, and all, all the power in the, in the world, they're also a wicked smart uh, organization that knows what they're doing with players. Milwaukee has been, uh, has, has maximized the, the talent they have had in tremendous ways over the last few years on the pitching side. So those, those are the ones that jump to mind. But, but Houston's obviously uh, at the forefront of this, as, as most people know. And you mentioned that some teams are to be charitable catching up. <laughs> uh, who are some of the organizations that you look at and think, uh, you know, if it came to a tiebreaker, I'll take the Houston guy over this team? Well, it's never going to be a tiebreaker because they also have no talent, but Miami's obviously playing a different game from the rest of us at this point still. I think maybe it's getting better. Baltimore is finally getting uh Better. I mean, those are the the two of most. I mean, Baltimore literally did not have an analytics department in their front office until this year. Like they had, they had nothing. They their answer, uh, their answer when asked about those things was, yeah, no, we don't do any of that. They were pretty open about the fact that they just don't do any of those things. I expect it will change now with the with the new regime in Baltimore. It'll just take some time because uh, the cupboard is rather bare. 
And we talked earlier about the the team philosophy as it affects stolen bases in particular. That's kind of a managerial choice, which probably reflects an organizational philosophy. Do the managers themselves influence how you look at a particular player? Uh, And I know it's part and parcel with the organization, as I said, but there are analysts who think a lot more of some managers than others for the field decisions that they make during games. Um, Ned Yost is, is the poster boy for the opposite, but there are, are there managers that you like when you're looking at a player? Um, at the margins that make, make, uh, make a difference, it's usually built into the projection in some ways in terms of just stolen base aggressiveness. Um, but it's not like the, I, I tried it. it, it it's so noisy, right? Like trying to say because this guy – well, actually, the other uh, instance where it, it comes to effect is closer usage. There are some, some organizations, and it's tough for us on the outside to separate what's an organizational philosophy versus a manager's philosophy, but we know there are some uh, organizations, some teams that just want to lock in a ninth-inning closer, and they're old school in that way. And it's, it's, it's hard, for them to, hard for us to see them changing that. And we love those teams because we like old-school closers, even if it's not always best for baseball or winning baseball games. It helps for our fantasy teams. There are other organizations that we know are just going to use their best pitcher in the highest leverage uh, situation. It happens to be the ninth inning, amazing. And if it happens to be the sixth inning, uh, amazing. And those are awful for our fantasy teams, but they're trying to win baseball games. They don't care about our fantasy teams. So that's another instance where, you know, I'm obviously uh, being cheeky there, but, but that does matter in terms of when I'm picking a closer and what the risk of, uh, of the closer being used in the seventh inning because that's where it makes sense uh, to use them and not getting saved, therefore. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Rob Silver from Baseball Prospectus and the Launch Angle Podcast. And Rob, uh, I always like to ask our experts to pick some boons and banes for the fantasy season. Boons are guys you like, banes are guys you don't, for whatever reason, value or whatever. Um, maybe let's start with some boons. These are guys you think should interest our listeners. Uh, and in the American League, who's a hitter you think positively about? Uh, Rafael Devers. I think he's uh, the perfect example of a, pipe, a post-hype uh, sleeper, even though he plays on the World Series, Series champion you know, Boston Red Sox. Uh, I think at 22, he's being underdrafted, and uh, I, think he, uh, I think he's a better player than a uh, fantasy player than, for example, Carlos Correa this year. So I really like Devers this year in the American League. In the National League, who's a hitter who could be a boon? Uh, he's not exactly a sleeper because he's going early, but I think Starlin Marte is a first-round player who you can get in the third round, and that gives you a lot of optionality of what you want to do before you take Starlin Marte. So I think Starlin Marte is like a top-15 player who you don't need to pay that kind of price for. And over to the mound we go, back to the American League. Who's a pitcher you like? Uh, In the American League, uh, Colin McHugh, for some of the reasons that we talked about in terms of the organization, but I think Colin McHugh... Is uh, is a different pitcher from the last time he was a starter, but he's a very good pitcher. And I think while Houston has lots of options uh, that they can go with, I think he's pretty safe to be able to keep a, a rotation spot in uh, the Astros rotation uh, for most of the season. So I I, uh, I think he's a pretty good buy at his current price. And in the National League, who's a pitcher that uh, interests you? 
the 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 guy I jotted down is who we discussed earlier, who you got for a buck is uh, Stephen Matz. I think he's uh, he's a tremendous National League uh, pitcher. There is there is some injury risk, like with all pitchers, but I, I like Stephen Matz at his cost a lot this year. Rob Silver's Boons, Raphael Devers of Boston, Starling Marte of Pittsburgh, Colin McHugh of Houston, Stephen Matz of the Mets. Over to the Baines, Rob. These are guys who you think are probably being overdrafted or you're leery about for whatever reason. Uh, back to the American League we go. Uh, a hitter that you're um, not that fond of. I'm going to go cliche here, and I apologize for it. It's Adalberto Mondesi. Um, he screams Byron Buxton to me. I know I could be very, very wrong on a team that played, you know, I'll see these Escobar 162 games. They'll keep playing him. They may even keep leading him off. So he may accumulate way better stats than Byron Buxton uh, ever did. But I see for his cost way more downside than I do for upside right now. Adalberto Mondesi might be the, one of the most divisive players among touts and experts uh, in the big leagues. Uh, there's a lot of people who feel like you, and there's a lot of people who say, I'd take him in the second round. You know, it's a, it's a very weird dichotomy. Uh, before we go on, what about uh, Byron Buxton? What do you think? Ah, you, you made your views very clear in Arizona on the, on the panel where you were discussing oh, yeah. uh, Byron Buxton. Um, I think that they will give him a shot. He's going to be batting ninth all season. It is hard to imagine a scenario where he gets out of that ninth spot. And I, I think his defense may keep him in the majors, but I just think there's so many flaws to his game. I don't. I, it's funny. He, he showed up in camp 20 pounds of muscle heavier. The problem was not how strong he was. When you swing and miss, it's not that you're not strong enough. You just need to hit the ball. And I'm not convinced he will ever make enough contact to be a good player or a good hitter or a good fantasy player. Who's your National League hitter who's a bane? Uh, I mentioned him earlier, Javi Baez. I still love him as a, as a, as a real-life player to watch. He's a ton of fun uh, in the field and what, what he does, but uh, he's not a first-round pick for me this year. Back to the mound, uh, an American League pitcher who's a bane? Um. It, it was tough for me. To, this was the hardest one because uh, there was no American League player uh, pitchers that jumped out on me. Uh, I'm going to go with Kikuchi, and it's not that I'm not intrigued by him. It's that they have made very clear, and I believe them, he's only going to pitch every sixth day. So they're they're going to push him, and that was one of the reasons why he signed in Seattle. Uh, he's not. A, he doesn't project as a huge strikeout pitcher. So when you have a pitcher whose innings are being capped and he's not running up the per-inning strikeouts, and he's going now as early as the 10th round, even if he translate, his game translates well, especially the first time or two through the league, I'm not convinced that um, he puts up enough stats to earn a 10th round pitcher, and there are too many pitchers I like more than him going around there. And- and finally, how about a National League pitcher who's a bane for you? Uh, again, I'm going to go kind of cliche. It's Madison Bumgarner. Uh, people, God bless the person in every league who's convinced that it's, it's all coming back and it's returning. And he is one guy who, if I see in spring training that the fastball is ticked up by, by you know, two, three, four miles uh, per hour, therefore the shoulder is fully healthy, uh, I can change this opinion. But as of now, um, Madison Bumgarner is... His, his best-case scenario, as I see it, is Rick Porcello. And there's a place for Rick Porcello. It's, Rick Porcello is fine, um, 
But people are drafting Madison Bumgarner as if he's still Madison Bumgarner, and he's not Madison Bumgarner anymore. So there is so much more downside uh, right now with Bumgarner than upside. But again, I'm open to being changed uh, this spring with him if the stuff returns. And of course, if you play in a league where pitcher home runs count, you've got to give uh, Madison Bumgarner a little bit of a boost as well. <laughs> Rob Silvers, Baines, Adalberto Mondesi of Kansas City, Javi Baez of the Cubs, Yusei Kikuchi of Seattle, and Madison Bumgarner of San Francisco. Rob, this has been terrific. Tell our listeners where they can read more from Rob, Rob Silver. Uh, I'm at Baseball Prospectus. I'm uh, at Twitter, at Rob Silver, and Launch Angle Podcast, wherever you download podcasts. And I should say that the uh, your Twitter feed is a lot of fun too. At Rob Silver is uh, definitely something that you should follow if you like an interesting, wide ranging uh, uh, Twitter feed. You can't do much better than Rob Silver. Rob, thanks very much for doing this. It was a blast, super informative. I do appreciate it. Maybe we'll get a chance to do it again during the year. Look forward to it. Rob Silver is an analyst at Baseball Prospectus and the Launch Angle Podcast. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, February 26th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number six of the 2019 fantasy baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Tuesday Tout Edition, Rob Silver from Baseball Prospectus and the Launch Angle Podcast. Rob's an excellent Twitter follow, a first-rate fantasy baseball analyst, and a terrific guest. I'm Patrick Davitt, the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to iTunes or Stitcher or Pocket Cast, wherever you get your pods, and if they'll let you, add to our ratings. It really does help us attract new listeners, and that helps us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again on Friday with our regular Friday news and commentary edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. Stay warm and so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.